word says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit indwelling those who are your sons and daughters. Your presence here, we pray that through your Spirit's help, we will understand and interact and be uh, so affected by your word as you would have each one of us to be this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So you've heard the phrase, maybe use the phrase, they say, great minds think alike. Great minds think alike. I did a little look on what's the origin of that word, and we're not going to go into all that. But it, it said most of the time when we say great minds think alike, it's usually that we're not calling ourselves great minds. Um, it's, it's that we're kind of ironically saying us average people had the same thought. Hey, great minds think alike. That's how I use it when I say that. Uh, great minds think alike, we say. We laugh. We say, hey, we must be great minds. We're thinking the same thing. Um, you know what it's like, perhaps, at work. And there's a work meeting, and, and you're together, and they're asking for some ideas, or what do you think about this particular problem? And maybe you say, uh, you raise your hand, they call on you, and you say, you know, I've been thinking about this, and, and I think whatever it is. And you know that the person leading the meeting or your boss or a coworker says, I've been thinking the same thing. And when people go, yeah, I, as I've pondered, this makes sense. And boy, when people are thinking alike and, and moving together in unison, uh, what does that do uh, for a project or for a cause? About 17 years ago, Paula and I were looking what to do with all those four little kids and where to go uh, to plant a church. We'd been through church planter training, and they said, well, go ahead. Uh, we approve you. Now, where, and the guy sat down with us and said, where do you want to go? He said, where do you want to go? The, there's so many people that want a church planted across the country, and, and you guys pretty much can, can find a group and find a place. Where do you want to go? Like, nobody's ever said that to me before. And Paul and I looked at each other, and we thought we would just take things one at a time, biblically. You know, just biblically, it's, it's better not to have a bunch of them and all that. Take a situation that seems right, pray about it and all that. But in the end, we ended up with three options. Because one we said no to, and then they came back at us. Then somebody who knew us in Delaware said, we'd like you to plant this church here. And then Danbury, uh, we'd already come up here thinking the others were off the table. So we had three at once. And I said, well, Paula, you know, this is like one of those shows that wasn't on then, but it's on now where the couples have three, three houses, you know, to look at. And you see how they negotiate. Those are kind of interesting shows. Um, but we didn't want to talk each other into something or out of something. So we took a couple of days apart from each other, prayed about it, thought about it, not 
apartment where we, we put that conversation off the table. And boy, wasn't it great when we came back and, and I was thinking Danbury. And to say, well, Paula, what do you think? She goes, I think Danbury. Boy, that was some kind of a, of a confirmation, having prayer and having together. And boy, when it got, when it got tough, we could at least say we think and, and know that God brought us here because it was a together thing and, and God knew the tough times too. And it gave us courage to go through. Paul is talking about that this morning in the text. Having one mind, he says, as he writes to this congregation, together. I mean, we know, we know uh, what it's like to not be like-minded. We know what it's like when there's friction. And we'll say things like, oh, there's too many chiefs and not enough Indians and things like that. And we, we have these things. We know what it's like. Paul says in this church, as he writes this letter to the Philippians, I'm praying. I want you to be like-minded. He says, boy, I'm talking about joy. I'm talking about how I think about you guys. I'm remembering you. I'm thanking God for you. But you want to make my joy complete have the same mind. Think together. And that's what we're talking about this morning, the necessity for members in a local church to be like-minded. And he's going to lead us then into having the mind of Christ. And he gives us great passage about Christ's mind. And that's where our anchor is, is to be. That's how we can have that like mind. So three points this morning. First, having the same mind with one another... Second one, having the same mind as Christ. And finally, the resulting perfection when there is that unity of mind. So first of all, in verses 1 through 4, having the same mind with one another, with each other. There's any, verses 1 through 4, any encouragement of Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul has a vested interest in their unity. And we better back up because we're not just doing a little literary study. I'm not a literature professor in a college somewhere, and we're not breaking down a text in a literary way. We understand that the human author was Paul, but the real author, the divine author is God. And God put this in Paul to desire a unity, for, for Paul's joy to be complete by having unity among the people. We're going to find out in chapter, I think it's three or four, it's four, where there's a little friction going on between a couple of, of uh, uh, people in the church, people that were there in the early stages, a couple of ladies. And he names somebody to help mediate, and he's saying there's just a little friction And even though I'm so joyful when I think about you, we've got to have a local church there in Philippi with some unity, with some like-mindedness, some thinking the same, a vested interest in them. He reveled in them as a group. He loved them as individuals, sure, but he loved them together. It's not just a propositional truth that uh, churches and church bodies should be unified. It's an emotional truth. It's a spiritual truth. Uh, Does it hurt parents whose kids are at war with each other? Yes, it does. Boy, you want your kids to like each other. You want them to get along if it's a family. When they don't, it does hurt. And God the Father who adopted us into his family, adopted us to love each other, uh, he wants us together, working together in unity. God didn't just save you if you're saved. God also led and brought you into a local community, a body of Christ. Uh, God's plan wasn't You get saved, and now you're the Lone Ranger. You just do your own thing. You do your own thing. God set up churches from the very beginning. 
and he put people in churches and bodies. And God wants and desires, we see from this passage, uh, boy, unity, getting along. Remember a time where, just as a youth pastor, I, I, just, I loved all the kids in the youth group. I loved them. I did. Uh, I, I just did. Each person uniquely and all of that. And, and, and uh, I was shielded from a lot. I had a great, wise senior pastor who let me be the youth pastor, knew I was going to be uh, one day called into ministry, but he didn't unload the trials and tribulations of every aspect of the church on me. He knew I was better uh, who I was. And I was a, told the guys Wednesday, I said, I was a, I'm, I'm a very dangerous com- combination. I'm an optimistic Calvinist. And that, that could be trouble. Because I see the best. I know God's in charge of it. And, and sometimes I don't get to, I don't, don't want to look at the friction or, or, or acknowledge. And as a kid, I was that way. And then to see a couple of families walk out of that pastor's office when I wasn't supposed to, and what's going on? And it turns out there's friction between these people I love and these kids in my youth group, and there's friction between them, and, and it, hits, it hit senior pastor level. And my heart just fell because I just, I loved everybody. I thought everybody loved everybody else. Um, Paul's heart, because he loved these people. Remember who the players were in, in Philippi, some of the, the ones we know about. There's a lot of them we don't know about. Paul loved them just the same. There's the jailer and his family who got saved. There's Lydia, uh, the, the business lady who was there. Uh, there's uh, most likely the, the, the girl who was, had the demon cast out of her that had been following them around. And there's people, and Paul knew them and loved them. He said, listen, like-mindedness is critical. And my joy is, is, is sky high when I think about you, but you want to complete it? Think alike, loving each other, taking care of each other. Have this, make my joy complete. So we see his vested interest in this. Here's the thing. He has confidence that there can be unity. That there can be, and it will be great. Uh, That little word, if there is any, da-da-da, if there is any, if there is any, all that stuff in verse 1, that could also be translated since. It's if or since. And he's, it's, it's a question like, of course there is. So he says, if there's any encouragement from Christ. Well, there is. He knows that. And they know that. And he knows they know that. If there is any comfort from love. Well, there is. If there's any participation of the Holy Spirit. Well, of course there is. He's saying, if you have these things in a congregation, if there's any affection and sympathy Well, why wouldn't there be? Why wouldn't there be? And he's saying, since all of this is here, what I'm proposing to you is not impossible. There's confidence there can be unity and it will be great. He says, then be of the same mind, which leads to unity. Of the same mind. What's the thought process? What's the worldview? Uh, uh, what does he mean when he says, be of the same mind? Well, here's a couple of clues in a couple of other letters he wrote to a couple of other congregations that God also breathed out. So God wrote these through Paul. One was to Romans, uh, the church in Rome, Romans 12.2. And we're thinking, remember, trying to understand what he means by being of the same mind. So Romans 12, 2, after all that great theology, he gets down to the practical, how to apply it. And he says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Transformed by the renewal of your mind. He's telling the Philippians, be of the same mind. He's telling the Romans, be, uh, be changed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he's saying part of having the same mind with each other is not having the mind of the world. Boy, they want us to think. They want us to want stuff. 
Oh, I want, I, I see things, I want it. I would look so cool. I would look just like that, that guy, uh, that guy in the, the um, you know, one weakness of many is, is Ebbets Field flannels for me. The old baseball uh, hats, the felt hats, the old Cuban leagues, the old Negro leagues, the old baseball from wherever. I, I really wanted, I want a hat that says Des Moines Demons on it because they were the team in the 50s. Uh, when, and that's Iowa, and that's that, and that'd be cool. And uh, I would look good in that. I'd look just like those guys in the picture if I wore that. Um, uh, they want us to buy their stuff. They want us to listen to their stuff. They want us to think their stuff. There's a whole world system. And Paul says, no, there's a world system, but you're saved out of that dead world. You're, didn't he say in Acts, save yourself from this crooked generation. And you get saved, you become a Christian. All of a sudden, you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, like the transformers. Cars that turn into robots or robots that turn into transformed. You're one thing, now you're another thing. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So he's talking about your mind, your worldview, how you think. And he's telling these Philippians, I want you to have the same kind of mind. 2 Corinthians 3.18. He wrote um, at least two letters to the Corinthians. We think maybe even three or four. And these are the ones that were scriptural and divinely God wanted in our, our Bibles. There's internal evidence, but he wrote this, and this is scripture, wrote to this church after dealing with them uh, through some hard sin issues. He said, and we all, this is 2 Corinthians 3.18, by the way, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, all of a sudden we're alive and we can see things. We've come back to life, and we can see things, and we can contemplate it. We all are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So there is a way of thinking, a way of viewing the world uh, that is unique to biblical Christians. It doesn't mean we all become clones. Some people take this and they say, okay, now we all have to dress alike, hold the same opinion on current events. We have to listen to the same type of music. We have to watch the same movies if we watch them. We have to eat the exact same food. We have to do everything the same. We want to be a clone. That's not what he's saying. But a way to think about how we make our individual life choices, uh, what we do. Uh, A good one is this. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God made you unique. Boy, I'm glad we're not all the same. That would be boring and it could be fatal. Sometimes in marriages, God puts uh, people together to balance each other's strengths and weaknesses out. My little joke thing that I say is opposites attract and then opposites attack. Uh, so you gotta you got to guard against the attack part of it. But the opposites, boy, God puts us in a church to have a plurality of, of, of views. Elders, what are we? we could, there's five of us. Boy, I'm glad. Five of me, that'd be terrible. One of me without the other four would be bad. But you know what? I hate to say it, but five of any of the others would be bad too. I don't see how. It couldn't be as bad as, as, as that. But, but there's a balance. There's a way of thinking. There's a way of listening. There's a perspective. There's, there's personalities. And God puts people together to be like-minded, not necessarily exactly alike. We don't become clones. Uh, listen, we, we don't even try and judge and put people under external pressure to be like we are. You have to, I mean, there's stuff I don't buy. There's a store, if I walk into it and they have a certain shoe company sign in the, in the uh, window wanting me to buy that kind of shoes, that doesn't make me buy their shoes. That just makes me pray for the Uyghurs who are being uh, uh, persecuted by that company making those shoes. But I don't look at your shoes and say, change your shoes. Your business. My business. Uh, what you subscribe to, what you do, as long as it's not sin, you have the leeway. 
I can try and influence you, I guess, in a private conversation and argue and let you influence me. But uh, there are things that are not any of my business or your business on me. Uh, James says this, James 4.12, there's only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? So again, we want to have like-mindedness, but that does not mean we all have to be exactly alike in everything or, or somebody is, is sinning. Uh, eating meat offered to idols is, 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 the, is the great example of that in Scripture. Okay? I want us to remember this as we move on from that. Being alike, thinking alike, having a worldview that's alike, but not being clones of each other. Also, I want us to remember this. This letter is confined to a local body. Some letters were written to the Christians in a region. Some letters were written, scriptural letters we're talking about, Pauline epistles. Some were written to a specific people, a couple to Timothy, one to Titus. This one is written to a local church in Philippi. Now, there may be principles that expand to the broader church, but this is how a local church is to function within the confines of a local church. That's its primary recipient. And he's writing to them, and he's saying, um, you, within your local body, if there's anything of encouragement, any comfort from love, any of this, be in full accord and of one mind. Have a worldview that's this, that, that, that's with each other. Letter is addressed, if you look in, in, in the start of it, it's addressed to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Okay? Now, what is one mind? What's he telling them? Well, it's a matter of perspective. It's beyond mere intellectual assent. Bible says, you believe in one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. Woke up in the middle of the night and couldn't sleep this week, and I put on RefNet and heard an old John Gerstner lecture. And boy, he was talking about, um, about this. He was hammering hard on it for an hour on the devils also believe and tremble. You can know Scripture. You can whip out a Bible and you can have every verse underlined and circled and little notes and you can, you can be a walking concordance. You can be all that stuff and be uh, headed straight uh, to hell. Mere intellectual assent is not what saves you and that's not the mind he's talking about. There's something about a mind, there's something about, and, and, and the Bible puts it in mind, and they talk about the heart, what they're talking about is the emotions and, and the will. Uh, the best verse I could think of to, to back this up, Romans 10, 9, and 10. Uh, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can't be saved without the intellectual knowledge of, the, of the, just the basics of there's a God, Jesus died, rose again, uh, propitiation for our sins. You have to have that intellectual knowledge. You're not saved with it. If you don't know that, that's why it says, how will they hear without a preacher? So we've got to tell the intellectual knowledge. But it's more than just agreeing intellectually. I would ask the kids in the youth group, who's the greatest theologian? Who's the greatest theologian alive today? And... Uh, you know, the ones who wanted to go on my good side would say J.I. Packer, because I loved him back in the day. Uh, they would say, someone would say Billy Graham, someone would say, and the answer, the greatest theologian alive today? Hey, Rolling Stone's got it right in that song, Sympathy for the Devil. He's been around. He sees how God works. He knows God. He can tell you better than you can what God's going to do in a situation. And he's waiting for his place in hell. Being a great theologian is good. I will not disparage that. I will not say don't know your Bibles, don't read. But if you're anchoring your spirituality, your relationship with God on that, maybe you're not even saved. Anchor it on your relationship with Jesus Christ. 
So he's talking about a mind, a mindset, a worldview. All of us Christians looking together to Jesus as the author and completer of our faith. He goes on to develop this thought about having the same mindset of full accord. In verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He's talking about others within the body of Christ. Remember, it's to the Christians. Look around in your church and say, that person's more important than me. That person, how's, how's that one doing? God, how's my little buddy Cameron doing? I'm going to pray for him. I love him. He's valuable. He means something. I asked Cameron, he's looking at me now. I ask him two questions when I see him on Sundays. I say, who made you? And he says, what kind of things does God make? God makes good choices, good things. And we look at that and we celebrate that and we try to, to, to bring out and who's, who's valuable in this church? Who's the most important in God's eyes? Well, um, the one you better not say is yourself. <laughs> um, but I think, I think we know the answer. God puts a group of people together and God's heart is, is for each of them and God is capable of doing that. told you before, out of the six kids in my family, I've had three of my siblings say this to me, really, over the course of years. Uh, two of them didn't say it to me. They said they think they were mom's favorite. <laughs> Kids get together. They, they, you know, it's not like the Smothers Brothers. Mom liked you better than me and all that. But, but three of them have told me that, and I always kind of thought I was. My mom had an ability, has an ability, to make each kid think that they were loved so special. And nobody doubts the other's love, and it wasn't said in a bragging way. God, God actually does that. Who's God's favorite? Well, you don't say it about yourself, but I'll say it about you. It's you, tied for first with everybody else. And it's wonderful love. Listen, consider others more significant than yourselves. Look out for the interests of others. How can I serve her? What's important to her? What does she need? How can I be used by God to supply that need in her life or his life? Again, we're talking about members of the local body, not just somebody outside. This deacon's offering and this deacon's fund this morning is to help address these things. There is a biblical mandate to help an immediate need uh, in, in people's lives within the congregation. James 2, 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that, says Scripture? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But note it says brother and sister, not just a professing brother or sister. You verify. Want something fun to do on a Sunday afternoon? Read Joshua 9 and read the story of the Gibeonites who were supposed to have been driven out of the land. We loved this story as little kids when it was Bible story time for that. And these guys came from next door, uh, essentially. And they came in with moldy bread, holes in their shoes. They said, we came from a far country. Look, this bread was freshly baked when we, when we started out. And this is how far we've come. And the leadership was tricked. And they made an ungodly treaty with the Gibeonites. They didn't discern the spirits. They didn't check before they gave this uh, peace treaty for they were bamboozled listen it says the men took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord yes you love yes you honor but he's talking about within your local Christian body when you see people and have people I get calls quite frequently. Somebody says, I just need a gift card. I, I need a store gift card. Can you give me a grocery store gift card? Uh, we've fallen on hard times. Do you have a gift card? And 
I'm happy to give the gift card, but I don't give the gift card. You know what I say? I say, you guys are in luck. Use that word luck. We know there's no such thing as luck, but I use that. You're in luck. I say, I keep walking by this little box out in our lobby of people that are giving groceries to the food pantry, and some of that looks really good, and I'm getting tempted by it. Why don't you, instead of a gift card, you just come by. We won't take you to the food pantry. You can have all of that. And boy, if somebody came up destitute and wanted that, I'd find a way to get them a gift card. But how many people do you think have come uh, that have called me wanting things, and I've offered that? How many people have come and taken advantage of that? Is zero a number? Is it an official number, you you mathematicians? Zero is a number. All right, zero, that's the number. Okay, so um, you think about that. He says, you be like-minded. You honor people. You take care of each other. You love. You give. But you're not obligated to give to some Gibeonite who just walks in and says, give to me. Even in the matter of churches with widows, how do you take care of widows? What's the first line of defense in a church with widows? For one, this is, is proof that there were local churches. They didn't have roles and records because it talks about putting people on roles and keeping roles. So one more biblical proof that there was something called an organized local church where they kept track of things. Um, that's just a side note. But Paul says in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, and it's long, it's, it's a section verses 3 through 16. Uh, I'm just going to read verse 3 and verse 16. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. He talks about the family being the first line of defense. The family of the widow. If that, if that widow has kids and grandkids, uh, those kids and grandkids, that's numero uno. That's the first line of defense. He ends up by saying, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Ah, the church will get it. My parents are in a jam. My parents need help. Ah, I'll let that church take care of it. I got my own thing. No. Christian, woman, you take care of it. And let the church be free then to take care of widows who are widows indeed. Family, first line of defense. In our own situation at Christ the Shepherd, look around, see, pray, act. A mindset of unity, a mindset that's Christian, a mindset looking out for each other, loving each other, caring for each other. Uh, More than in just financial matters, he's talking about the love you have for each other, and he's saying, essentially, defer to each other. Move on to the next point in just a minute, but, but one last illustration. I had two friends, maybe more than friends, but I had two friends at least in college because I'm going to talk about these two. Maybe that's, all, maybe that's all I had, but I thought I had a lot of friends, but two friends in particular I'm thinking of. You're walking down the hall with them. And as you're walking down side by side, friends, you know, one's not greater, one's not less, we're friends. We're walking side by side. And we're coming to a door, and it kind of funnels people. One friend instinctively, without even thinking, would slow down a half a step to let whoever he was walking with walk through the door first. He didn't even think about it. It was just his character and his nature. And one friend, the other friend, instinctively would quicken his step to get through the door first before whoever he was walking with. It was just his nature. Um, And you think about what do you do instinctively? Do you put people first? How do you honor? What's, what's going on? And as you look at your own actions or ask somebody who loves you to evaluate your own actions, hey, if you're in a marriage relationship, is your wife first? Or are you instinctively first? Or vice versa, husband. Uh, how, how are you with your people? Um, he's saying in a church situation, I'll read it and then we'll, we'll let it stand. As a guy used to say, read them and weep. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Uh, Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, 
We've got to get a move on. We're going to move a little faster here. Um, second point. Have the same mind as Christ. He uses Christ as our example. The main point he's making in this passage is not about Christ coming to earth. The main point in this passage is about how we Christians act to each other. His illustration is about Christ. Now, a lot of times we break this up and we, we shove the first four verses into one section of our teaching and then we get this great Christological section uh, for this one. I used to listen over and over again. It was a John MacArthur series back in my Frito-Lay days in my cassette. Ordered, ordered the tape series. Christ humbled, Christ exalted. It was wonderful on this section. But this section is not a standalone section. This is about how we act. Act like the Christ who saved you. So what did Jesus do? Verses 5 and 6. Have this mind among yourselves. So he's talking about the mind. The mind we're supposed to be alike, thinking alike. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Because you're in Christ, you you can tap into this mind. You can have this mind, and you can have it together. We all have it together, then we have unity. He says, have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, Jesus is eternal. Jesus is God. We sing God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Jesus was there at the beginning. He proceeded from God. Quote that. Uh, there's, there's a lot of beautiful theology that you can get into, and, and it'd be a good way to spend your time. We understand Jesus is eternal. Jesus is God. He left his equality with God. He didn't hold on to it. He didn't become less than God in actuality. He came to earth to be treated the opposite way that one would treat God, though. Let's say uh, Judas jumped the gun and betrayed Jesus a little earlier than on Passover night. And, 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 he said, I, I, can get, I can find Jesus for you, and I'll take my silver now. And he took him up there to the mountain where Jesus was being transfigured. And Jesus appeared. Do you think those guys would, would uh, take Jesus at that point? They'd fall down and worship him. They'd be like Peter. He was God all the way through. But he didn't hold on to that. He came to be treated the opposite way that one would treat God. If you knew it was God, you wouldn't kill him. If you knew it was God, you'd listen to him. He laid that aside, what he had in heaven. Um, I, probably, I probably need to spend a whole lot more time developing how to say that better. But understand this. Uh, they saw what they saw, and they did not see God. And it was God, and they killed him. Isaiah 53, 2b and 3, this says it better. He had no former majesty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Proposition, had he come and been the king of the whole world, don't you agree it still would have been a greater demotion than we could even understand? And he come just in any kind of human form to be the boss of us all, uh, to step down from being God in heaven to earth, uh, that itself, that how did he come? Came as a born in a manger, came as a nobody. Who is this guy? What's your hometown? Who are you? Easy for people who despise people to despise him based on his pedigree. Who's your daddy? Who are you? What are you? What, and that's God that we're talking about. And the Bible said he laid all of that aside. He, he didn't 
consider it something to be grasped. He didn't hang on to that. He said, I'm going. A verse you should love. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I give it willingly. Didn't have a vote, secret vote, which member of the Trinity has to go down and, and get treated like that. That was his job. He was Jesus. It says he was obedient to the point of death. What manner of death? Even death on a cross. The worst torture, the legendary worst crucifixion, the worst way to die was that way. That was to make a public spectacle. And that's how Jesus chose to come and die. Put a Harry Potter reference in here. I'll go ahead and do it. Uh, the Cruciatus curse that Neville Longbottom's parents were tortured with. The worst form of torture. The worst, worst in that day. In the Roman day, the worst form of torturous death was death on a cross. Crucifixion. Had a teacher in Bible college one day. He said, automatic F. <laughs> If you misspell crucifixion, because people were misspelling, they're calling it crucifixion. Cruci F-I-C-T-I-O-N. Crucifixion. Because it's not fiction. It's crucifixion. F-I-X-I-O-N. Crucifixion. You spell that wrong? F. I'm not even reading farther in your paper. Um, wow. Got his point across. Still remember it 40 years later. Listen, he came to die even a death on a cross. What Jesus gave up wasn't just like giving up sweet tea for Lent or something like that. What he gave up and what he took on was astounding when you think of God writing himself into the script to do that. Why? For his own glory? Now he had glory. Why? For you. Me. And Paul said, embrace the mindset just like Jesus gave up what he had for you. You guys have the mindset where you do that for each other. Go the extra mile, etc., etc. And then he ties it together, and we're going to tie it together and go to the table in a moment. He put it together with this beautiful picture of Jesus and our relationship with him. It comes as a result. You know, we have the mind with each other. It's the mind that Christ has given us and all that. And he says, all of a sudden, everything is in perfect harmony and symmetry the way the world is supposed to be. How is it supposed to be? This. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It's not the name Jesus. We say, well, that the name of Jesus. Not at the name Jesus, at the name of Jesus. This name. This uh, Yahweh, this Lord, God has said he is the Lord. Uh, he is shown to be the Lord. Uh, throughout Revelation it talks, God holds him up for all to see. We even see 2,000 years, earth years later, who he is. God lifted him up and at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth, under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He holds him up for all to see. Songwriter I like said the cross was the place for Jesus' coronation speech. He was lifted up, the king of glory. And he said these words to us like, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Forgive them. They know not what they do. And all that he did uh, to make even the guy who, who made his living, hey, how was your work today, honey? Uh, it was all right. How many crucifixions? Ah, six. You know, got eight tomorrow, so I'm going to be really tired when I come home. Uh, the guy who just did this as a matter of routine stopped and said, truly this man was the son of God. There was something about even how he died. God lifted him up and is lifting him up and has lifted him up in your heart if you're a Christian. And how's it end? Well, here's just a couple of verses. Uh, Revelation 11, 15, and 16. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
If Laura was here who sings the Messiah in the Choral Society, she'd have that going through her head. And, uh, and I would reference it if she was here. I reference it without her here. Um, and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Everything, Jesus was exalted. And we get to do what we were made to do. Verses 10 and 11. Every knee bowing in heaven on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What were you created to do? To worship God or to glorify God. And because of Jesus' voluntary humility, uh, because of him humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, conquering death, being the substitute for your sins, coming out of the tomb, teaching a while, tying some things together, promising the Holy Spirit, ascending into heaven where he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, sending the Holy Spirit to you, saving you, getting ready. Uh, All of a sudden it lines up. What we did this morning, imperfect as we are, lined up with what we were made to do. And he's saying, you have this mindset like each other, the mindset of Christ, and things line up, and you can truly say, all's right with the world. It is when you're worshiping God. What's coming? Well, he's going to continue the letter. We'll get to that next week. What do you do? How do we respond to this? Well, maybe you steal away, like I said a little earlier, and say, God, forgive me. I've been, I'm full of the muck of the world. (laughs) I got all this crud on my boots and my arms, and I haven't taken a bath for a while, and I'm I'm actually starting to think this world smells better than, than, uh, than heaven. Forgive me, God. Remind me, God. Bring me back to the cross, God. Help me, God. And then help me. If I'm going to be Christ-like in my congregation, I'm going to pray for the people in my congregation. I'm going to love them, and I'm going to bend over backwards to help everyone who needs to encourage them in their own growth, and I'm going to love the congregation. Final on a practical point. Um, How does it look? Is everybody in here supposed to be every single person's best friend? (laughs) That's impossible. Uh, I believe our church, by God's grace, I think it's going to grow in in some numbers and people are going to come along. And then what are we going to do? We're the old timers. You guys make friends yourselves and all that. And, And I developed this thing back in the old day. We had a kid that came, new to the youth group. Our youth group was a little bit bigger than the, the congregation here is, you know, 50 to 70 kids, um, and then their friends would come to various things and all that, and, and this, this guy came in, I won't tell you, <laughs> I want to I tell you his name, I'm not, it doesn't even matter, it doesn't matter, I'll, I'll, say his name was, uh, I'll say his name was David. So this guy David comes in, and he starts to really get Jealous, his parents won a conference with me and with the pastor, and they said, that youth group is full of cliques. That's just a bunch of cliques. And we found out the root of the problem was this guy David went to this high school. He was a sophomore or freshman. And three seniors who went to Tate High School, who'd grown up together, who liked golf, went golfing together. Those are, that's a clique. And I said, no, man, that's not a click. Um, they, don't, they don't even know. You're, you're, a, you're younger. It's a large church. You can't look at that. And I started to say and think about this. And I said, I want a youth group full of clicks. I want clicks. I want clicks upon clicks. I want a whole lot of clicks. And I want every single person in this youth group to be part of a click. And I want all the clicks to love each other and get along with each other and understand where they're at in life. And that way they don't all have to uh, uh, be everybody's best friend, which is impossible. If they knew each other, they would love them. Everybody in this congregation, 
boy, you're interesting. In the hands of the right writer, they could write a book about any single person in here and make it compelling and, and worth reading and wonderful and lovely. We just don't all have time to read all those books. Uh, we've got obligations and duties. So we love, we get along, we have a spirit for each other, we see each other, we want the best for each other. We have a mind of Christ when there's an opportunity, we serve each other. And then we come together and we do what God made us to do. We worship him here on earth and then we get to go to heaven and worship him for good. So, time for the family meal. So let's go to the table and have our family meal as we have our communion. That is union. That is us together. Um, what do you do with it? Well, if you've got a grudge against anybody in here, if you think you're superior or you don't understand, uh, take that to the Lord and pray. Maybe there's somebody you need to get to know a little bit better. Or maybe you, say, you just have to say, I haven't walked a mile in her shoes yet, and I don't know what she's going through. And, and so maybe that's why in my human flesh I'm, I'm, I'm apt to dismiss her or him. Uh, but Christ died for her. Just the last thing is, is this. A guy said this one time. He said, you go to the cross and you pretend you've got a ladder behind it and you climb up that ladder and you look down on all the people that God has saved and you see them from Jesus' perspective and it will change your perspective toward your fellow Christians and worshipers. Now let's pray and close and go to the table. Lord, thank you for this passage. We pray that you would help us uh, in our sinfulness to overcome and to have a unity of mind and have a, a way of looking at each other in this local body that you've put us into. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of getting to know uh, believers here that we'll worship you with forever and ever. We pray that you'll help us uh, uh, to complete the joy of, of the one who called us and adopted us. We pray that as kids we'll get along and, and, and love each other. Thank you for the great unifier, the one common denominator we have, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.